You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Good morning. This is, this is a paraphrase of Genesis 4. I believe it's from the Patrick Boatwright and Ryan Diaz version of the Bible, which, honestly, after you hear this, should probably be published. So just put in that other. <clears throat> so this is Genesis 4. After the garden, where so much was lost, Adam and Eve begin again. They start with the child. His name is Cain because Eve has created him out of her flesh with the Lord's help. She also bears another one. The two brothers bring their gifts to the Lord. One finds favor, the other displeasure, and chaos spills out of his heart and into his hands where it becomes sin and his brother's doom. Abel's blood cries out, and the Lord hears. He names the curse that has now marked Cain. Another man heads east of Eden, and violent men make more violent men. And through all this, another plan, another son, is born. Eve receives her gift from the Lord, Seth, the appointed one, the one she thanks him for. This is the story of God. Good morning. I heard my, my wife's voice. We have next week, week after next, the 19th, we will have been married eight years. If you needed to know what the Lord could do, um, let that be a sign. Uh, but after eight years, you, she doesn't even have to say it. I just hear her voice. Go to the restroom before you get up there. Uh, and also, don't tell them this. Uh, sometimes we listen, sometimes we don't. Uh, well, welcome, friends. Uh, off the top, I'm just going to say, some of you, if this is your first time with us or your first time in a while, you may be having some sort of thought was, what, wait, what was that? <laughs> uh, that was not a, a chapter in verse. Uh, and it, can we do that? Is, is that allowed? And um, I, I just want to speak to that real quick of, of why we have chosen through this series to use these paraphrase. Uh, in part, it is a function of utility. Uh, as you will know, if you don't know, we are moving through as a community the entire Bible, but we are not moving through it canonically, like chapter to this chapter to this chapter, but we are moving through it narratively. We are looking at this as the story of God. And so that means we're gonna have to kind of speed up some things and slow down some things. And honestly, starting like next week when we cover three chapters, it would just simply be impossible to read all that and leave time for me to say something. Um, and I like to talk. So, uh, so part of that is utility. Uh, the other part of that is, is invitation. It is, it is an invitation for us to take 
step back and to consider that for the majority of Christians, the majority of followers of Jehovah and Jesus, they did not have a chapter or a verse to point to, but they had stories. They had the story of God. Thankfully, it was eventually written down. Thankfully, the printing press allowed it to be mass produced and we can all end it up with our hands. Uh, that is a gift, and also the burden of that gift is that we have lost the fact that for, for long stretches of what it's meant to be a follower of the way, it is meant that we had to come together to receive the word of the Lord in communion and in community. And so part of that paraphrase is just, to, is just to kind of bring our awareness and our senses into that place, into what exactly we're doing. But to that end, I too love the chapter and verse. It is with me up here today, and I'm excited about getting into it. Um, and so we have not abandoned that or forsaken that as a community. What we have done is created other kind of spots and resources to dive in. And so I just want to give you a quick reminder of those other places outside of Sunday morning. First off, yeah, we have the Sunday teaching. This is gonna be kind of for our community, the narrative thrust. This is kind of guiding us through uh, the story of God. But around that, we have uh, created a, a, a daily reading plan. Uh, if you haven't gotten it yet in the back, there should be bookmarks that have our reading plan. And we have divided up this teaching, the, the whole Bible, in about 15 chapters uh, using uh, language from the Bible Project. Incredible, if you, if you aren't familiar with them. Uh, and, and so each chapter, we've created a bookmark with a reading plan so that each day you can open your word and you can go into it and just follow along the story for yourself. Also, we have Sunday school. Sunday school, we're kicking it back. Uh, after the services each, each Sunday, Aria and Robbie and others are holding this space right here in this room to kind of go into the text itself and explore and to make space for questions and conversations around the relevant scripture passages that we're covering. So I would invite you to take advantage of that. If you're like, all right, I wanna like get into some, some word study. I wanna know a little bit more about the things I've been reading, then please avail yourself of that. Also, each Thursday, uh, Ryan and I come together and we kind of go deeper into the themes that I kind of set up here uh, in ways we can't really. And that's called Between the Lines. It's on the same podcast feed as our teaching. Uh, and we invite you to, to just plug in there to see. There's so much we want to say and cannot say uh, in 30 minutes. I am the grandson of a holiness minister. Uh, so you could have a very different experience, uh, but the, I've, I've, I've been seeking to like limit myself. Uh, brevity is a, is a gift and a blessing, I've heard it said. Uh, and then also we have community groups. If anything, I would, I would truly beseech you and beg of you to join a community group because this honestly is where the functional life of this church happens. I love you all, and it is so great to have this passing of the peace, but there's just simply no way that we can all know each other. That should not be our aim or our goal. We should be hospitable and loving and, and so thankful to see one another, and that's why we hold this passing of the peace. Uh, but we are called and invited into so much more. We are called and invited into doing life together. 
And so to facilitate that, we have created community groups. Some meet weekly, some meet biweekly, but all meet for the purpose of, of one, communing together, and also two, to move through uh, our rule of life, the good way, uh, and all the aspects of that. And this season, while we're going through the story of God, they also are a place for discussion and exploration of the text and the teaching uh, that happens on Sunday. And so if you're not currently in a community group, I would invite you to email Ryan or go into the website. And also, I just want to give an invitation for those of you who may be willing to, to host, huge, and also to lead, even more huge. Uh, I would ask you to reach out. So we've got a lot of people who want to be able to make space but there's a big difference in like a 10-person group and like a 16-person group. Like it, it, things start to break down. And so I just want to invite you into consideration of that. Now, there are other things that are going to be coming, like a website to kind of catalog all the things and more resources, bless you, and lectures and all sorts. Uh, but more on that later. So the too long didn't read. We're moving through the story of God. And we're reminding ourselves that stories make up everything. And there is one story that holds all others. But before we get back into the story where we left off with Adam and Eve uh, walking away from a garden and the ordered and well-functioning place they called home, I want to give a quick note. Um, because it is instrumental that if we don't get this, we, we will honestly, like, None of the, the rest of however long it takes us to get through this, this series will, will make much sense, uh, at least in the way that uh, we have felt called by the Lord to, to teach it. And this is a note on chaos and sin. So up until now, uh, we've been in this series now about three weeks, and you've not heard the word sin. Uh, that is both intention and also uh, respect. The word sin uh, in the scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, don't appear until chapter four, which is where we are today. But we have brought up chaos. And the reason I want to make this note is because uh, functionally, what is informing the way we are telling this story is the belief that what is most true about the world and all things in it is that there exists the divine, Elohim, the one who cannot be separated from his work, which is creating skies and land, which is creating the ability for life to flourish. And there's chaos. In you, there is the image of God, beautiful and holy, worthy of respect, and there is chaos. And chaos, we are defining as neutral. Chaos can be good. Oftentimes we think of it in the negative, but if you think about a roller coaster, what good is an unchaotic roller coaster? Now, I want that co roller coaster chaotic on the rails. I don't want it chaotic off the rails, but there is such a thing as good chaos. But when things get disordered in the world, typically when men start to do things they don't have the ability to do, chaos escapes its bounds and makes a mess. Think of my son, he's almost five, and every now and then he loves to cook, and when we make the eggs in the morning, we put a little bit of milk. But he is not strong enough to hold the whole gallon, and so we have learned that if he tries, we will end up with milk with a dash of eggs. Uh, 
There is something to chaos that needs its order and its bounds. Hear the way that James say it, says it in his epistle, chapter 1, 14 to 15. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, desire there I would, is the word that we're using, we're referring to as chaos, chaos and desire, right? Enticed by his own chaos. And, and again, I, I wanna make this point because oftentimes, uh, particularly in, in Western Protestant churches, uh, what can be tacitly uh, taught is that our desires are evil and that to follow in the way of the Lord is to find your desires and eradicate them. Because if you don't, well, then you'll die and you will displease God. And that is actually not the biblical mandate about our relationship to our desires. The word there is epithumia. It's a Greek word that, yes, it, it, it means desire. It means, it means appeal. It means a want. Uh, but it is neutral. And oftentimes it's used in terms of food and sex. Now, this is not to limit its scope of what kind of desires it's talking about, more so than it is to focus its intensity. Because the thing about food and sex is that they are central to the human experience. And here's what I mean by that when I say sex is central to the human experience. I do not mean that the act of sex is central to the human experience. What I do mean is that sex as a form of intimacy, intimacy is key to the human experience. Sex is one of the most concentrated forms of intimacy, but it is not the only form of intimacy. But this is the intensity. Those basic things we need, sustenance and intimacy, this is wrapped up in this word desire. So to explain what I mean about chaos and sin, desire, uh, which we can also understand as our emotions, our feelings, whether they be things such as, as sexual desire or whether they be even be things like disgust. There is, there is such a thing as holy disgust. I wanna read from you uh, from an article uh, in the academic journal Presbyterian by Travis Hutchison, he writes, Speaking of this word, epithemia or desire, in Greco-Roman texts, epithemia was generally viewed as a rudimentary human desire. In Plato, epithemia is a building block of the human soul. From a morality standpoint, Aristotle saw the term as either virtuous or vicious, depending on the context in which it was used. Moreover, when the object of epithemia was a vice, he believed it needed to be repurposed towards virtuous ends through rational thinking. In Jewish texts, epithemia was often used in similar ways to some Greco-Roman texts. And this was especially true for texts written around the time of the New Testament by Jewish writers who had a very Hellenized or Greek view of the world. Philo is one, Philo is one such example. Philo believed that desire itself was not evil per se, but became evil when misdirected and used in excess. Furthermore, he makes clear that the soul desires complete satisfaction. 
and untamed desire for satisfaction from something not meant to satisfy agonizes the soul. I'm read that again. Untamed desire for satisfaction from something not meant to satisfy agonizes the soul. He even goes as far as to call epithemia the fount of injustice. Our desires can be good and holy things given by our Lord to bring us what we desire, which is the fullness of our satisfaction. But when our satisfaction comes off the rails and it guides us, and we try to find our satisfaction in things that cannot sustain it and truly give it, this then becomes sin. And sin, well, sin, it always sours and grows in intensity until it reaches death. This, this I think is, 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 is the foundational conflict of the story. A God who is trying to order chaos so that people can live. And a people who are rejecting his order and attempt to make it for themselves. And in the end, it spills over into sin and death. So let's go into the story. I just want to make a note as we go into Genesis 4 and, and we pick up with Adam and Eve that Genesis 4 mirrors Genesis 3, both in its structure and its language. And we'll, we'll speak to that a little bit. But what we have, where we start with Genesis 4, is that the garden, the peace of the garden has been ruptured. That the people, instead of stewarding the order that was given to them, well, they tried to create the order and were overwhelmed. They wanted to be like gods, and it didn't really work out. Now, here outside the garden, Adam and Eve, they start, they start again, and as we come into the story, we ask, and I ask, what are the lessons that they've learned from all that they've experienced? The story begins, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Uh, I want us to focus. I think there is something of note in what Eve is saying here. See, Eve uses both possessive and creator language. Here, Eve is saying, this is the man that I created. Again, she puts herself and equality with Elohim. Elohim, you created man, and I did too, though you did help. We see this in the use of the word ish. I have gotten a man, ish, I have gotten an ish, which is never a word used for children except for here. And the first time that ish is, using, is used, well, it was, in a, it was in a poem that was spoken to Eve when she first met her husband. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of ish. Eve places herself on par with Elohim, the one who creates order and creates life. Now she too has created life. 
And so you can imagine that for Eve, Cain, Cain is her attempt to join the heavens of heavens, to become, remember Elohim, this title for holy beings. Eve is trying to become her own holy heavenly being. And then she also has another son. And again, she bore his brother Abel. But what is interesting is that the word Abel, what, what Eve names her son is nothing. Eve, unlike Cain, who is her pride, Eve doesn't even get a name. Abel actually means nothing. It is the word used in Ecclesiastes when the writer says, nothing, nothing, everything is nothing. Everything is meaningless. Abel, Abel, everything is Abel. The second son, whose mother does not sing a song and can't even be bothered to name him. And he's thrust into a family under the pride of his older brother. Now from here, we don't know the immediate context of what happens next. Though I think about the context of what happens in a family with a firstborn son whose mother sees him as his divine, her divine act, and a second son she can't be bothered with. What relationships develop? How are they formed? There's something I find interesting for Cain, his mother's pride, and for Abel, his mother's annoyance. It harkens me to the wisdom of Israel in Proverbs where it says, towards the scorner he is scornful, speaking of the Lord. But the humble he gives favor. James, when he quotes his passages, says it this way, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the context that I bring when I read that both of these brothers become men and they too have their now developed their own relationship with the Lord of their mother and father. And they bring their offerings one day. But these offerings aren't received the same. But more than the offerings, the brothers aren't received the same. The story says that Abel, Abel was looked on with favor by the Lord. Cain with disapproval. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And this creates immense displeasure in Cain. He becomes disordered and his body becomes uninhabited. It says this, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. His emotions start to stir up. Chaos in him starts to bubble. To which the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? Well, if you do well, you'll be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. 
it is interesting to note that the Lord does not punish Cain for his sacrifice, nor is the Lord undone by Cain's anger. Instead, to the chaos that is bubbling, the Lord hovers and he orders the relationship and gives Cain a warning. You already have full access to me and my life flourishing ways. So take your emotions and live out your dominion over them in the way that I have ordered them and given them to you. If chaos is the waters behind the dam, sin is the resulting tsunami when the dam breaks. It is lethal and thorough in its death dealing. We can think of wine in and of itself ripened grapes. And it can be used to open the senses, to experience pleasure, to, to induce a sense of euphoria. And that is good. But when we reach that euphoria as a way to mute our pain, when we try to find our comfort in that cup, we drown. And so Cain is sent off with his anger, with the chaos bubbling, with the Lord who has tried to order it, but he, he lets it spill over. And it spills over in violence and he kills his brother. It's interesting what sin does. When God comes and he says to Cain, what have you done? Where's your brother? To which Cain does not, does not really reply. He, he deflects and says, why is that my concern? Aren't you the one that's supposed to be watching over him? To then God says, well, yes. And I have heard his blood. His blood is crying out from the ground. And now from the ground comes a curse. The ground was already cursed, and now you will carry its curse. The ground which has opened its mouth, the Lord says, to receive your, blood, blother, your brother's blood from your hands. When you work the ground, Cain, it shall no longer yield to you its strength, and you will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Chaos, unordered, becomes sin. Sin, when fully matured, becomes death. But that death is not instant. And it doesn't always start with the body. Where it often starts is with our purpose and with our relationship to people. This is how sin metastasizes. The first form of cancer. It grows and it grows until it takes over and crowds out life. And eventually the body dies. And then from here, Cain has this lament. He says, this, this punishment is just too much to bear. And here, like his mother, he twists the words of the Lord. The Lord only said to him, 
that the ground would be hard for him to, to work. To which Cain says, your face will depart from me. This is what you told me. You're going to leave me. But the Lord had not said such a thing. And in fact, he says, no. No, actually, I will put my mark upon you so that no one will harm you. Even while Cain was a murderer, the Lord gave him a chance to live. But Cain has to bear the mark and the consequence of letting sin become disordered, letting chaos become disordered. And so he goes off, the scriptures say, east of Eden, and he has children, and they have children, and they have children. And six generations from Cain, we hear of his great-great-son, Lamech. And here is something I find interesting. Chapter 4 begins with Eve. Seven generations from Eve, we have Lamech. In the story of the Hebrew people, seven is the sign of completion. It is what a thing is. Seven generations of Eve's family, this is who they are. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, says Lamech. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Eve's family has become a family of violent, violent, disordered men. This is who they are. And it increases and it increases from sevenfold to seventyfold. Chaos, there is no dam. Everything is underwater. But this is where the story ends for today. Just as the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the Tovu Vavohu, the unordered and uninhabited world, and began to pull back the world so that the, 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 the chaotic waters and put them in their place so that life can flourish here when this family has been overwhelmed by sin and death, Eve, again, her last words, sings another song. Verse 25, and Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Eve has abandoned the language of a creator. And she assumes the language of a steward. This is the son that is a gift from God. And for the first time, a person, a mother, actually even bothers to use Abel's name. And she is able to name what has happened to him. Seth means appointed or granted 
emphasizing the divine purpose behind his birth. There is a chance to start again. We'll see if chaos stays within its bounds next time. I am, little time I've left, I just want to share with you, you know, there's so many ways, there's so many things that may come up for you in this story, and I I just want to kind of give you two ways that this story has hit me even this week as I sat with it. And then uh, I'm going to invite you, if there are any questions, we want to make space. You know, that's what you do when you tell a good story. You, you leave room for questions. And so I'll take a few. And um, I'm sorry I didn't have, usually we have a Mentimeter so you can submit questions. I will say if you, if you have a question that doesn't get answered today or you want a definite answer on, if you would just email uh, info at oaksbk.church this week, we will absolutely reply to you. Um, But here are two of the things that I take away. One is a question, which is, what do I do when God displeases me? I got one in the house. So much can focus on Cain's being displeasuring God. But for Cain, God has failed him. God has not given him what he wants. And this starts to stir up all sorts of chaos in him. So I've been sitting with that question, what do I do when God displeases me? And my anger starts to rise. And he doesn't reject it. He doesn't reject it. But what do I do with it? It's a question. I'm thinking on it. The second thing is, One of the ways we receive this gospel in this community, the good news of the story of God, is that it is liberating. Means it takes up the cause of the oppressed. And obviously being a descendant of oppressed people, and you know, we are in the shortest month of the year uh, where we talk about it. Um, Something that hits me as I, as I sat with this text this week is how no one says Abel's name. Until the end, Eve finally voices her son. But from the beginning, God does. God knows Abel's name. And God says it, and God names the injustice that has happened to Abel. And that is, uh, there is something of a, more than a kindness. Whatever it is that encapsulates when you feel seen. Uh, When you've been underneath brokenness. And uh, yeah, there is something of of a beauty there of this God that sees. And also something of a wrestle because he did not prevent. And what do I do with that? And what do I do with a God who even in the midst of, of, of the hurt he carries at Abel's murder still seeks to order the chaos within Cain? There are consequences. 
there are consequences. And there's also something of an invitation out of the darkness Cana is known.